Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tonight, I will be reading two short stories by Guy de Maupassant. The necklace and a piece of string. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. The necklace. She was one of those pretty and charming girls born, as if by an error of fate, into a family of Clarks. 
She had no dowry, no expectations, no means of becoming known, understood, loved, or wedded by a man of wealth and distinction. And so she let herself be married to a minor official at the Ministry of Education. She dressed plainly because she had never been able to afford anything better, but she was as unhappy as if she had once been wealthy. Women don't belong to a caste or class. Their beauty, grace, and natural charm take the place of birth and family. Natural delicacy, instinctive elegance, and a quick wit determine their place in society and make the daughters of commoners the equals of the very finest ladies. She suffered endlessly, feeling she was entitled to all the delicacies and luxuries of life. She suffered because of the poorness of her house as she looked at the dirty walls, the worn-out chairs, and the ugly curtains. All these things that another woman of her class would not even have noticed tormented her and made her resentful. The sight of the little Brenton girl who did her housework filled her with terrible regrets and hopeless fantasies. She dreamed of silent antechambers hung with tapestries, lit from above by torches and bronze holders, while two tall footmen in knee-length breeches, napped in huge armchairs, sleepy from the stove's oppressive warmth. She dreamed of vast living rooms furnished in rare old silks, elegant furniture loaded with priceless ornaments, and inviting smaller rooms, perfumed, made for afternoon chats with close friends, famous, sought-after men who all women envy and desire. When she sat down to dinner at a round table, covered with a three-day-old cloth, opposite her husband, who, lifting the lid off the soup, shouted excitedly, Ah, beef stew, what could be better? She dreamed of fine dinners, of shining silverware, of tapestries which peopled the walls with figures from another time, and strange birds in fairy forests. She dreamed of delicious dishes served on wonderful plates, of whispered gallantries listened to with an inscrutable smile as one ate the pink flesh of trout or the wings of a quail. She had no dresses, no jewels, nothing. And these were the only things she loved. She felt she was made for them alone. She wanted so much to charm, to be envied, to be desired and sought after. She had a rich friend, a former schoolmate at the convent, whom she no longer wanted to visit because she suffered so much when she came home. For whole days afterwards, she would weep with sorrow, regret, despair, and misery. One evening, her husband came home with an air of triumph, holding a large envelope in his hand. Look, he said, here's something for you. She tore open the paper and drew out a card on which was printed the words, The Minister of Education and Madame Georges Ropeno request the pleasure of Monsieur and Madame Roiselle's company at the ministry on the evening of Monday, January 18th. Instead of being delighted, as her husband had hoped, she threw the invitation on the table resentfully and muttered, What do you want me to do with that? But, my dear, I thought you would be pleased. You never go out, and it will be such a lovely occasion. I had awful trouble getting it. Everyone wants to go. It is very exclusive, and they're not giving many invitations to clerks. The whole ministry will be there. She stared at him angrily and said impatiently, And what do you expect me to wear if I go, 
He hadn't thought of that. He stammered. Why the dress you go to the theatre in? It seems very nice to me. He stopped, stunned, distressed to see his wife crying. Two large tears ran slowly from the corners of her eyes towards the corners of her mouth. He stuttered. What's the matter? What's the matter? With great effort, she overcame her grief and replied in a calm voice as she wiped her wet cheeks. Nothing. Only, I have no dress, and so I cannot go to this party. Give your invitation to a friend whose wife has better clothes than I do. He was distraught, but tried again. Let's see, Mathilde. How much would a suitable dress cost? One which you could use again on other occasions. Something very simple. She thought for a moment, computing the cost, and also wondering what amount she could ask for without an immediate refusal and an alarmed exclamation from the thrifty clerk. At last, she answered hesitantly, I don't know exactly, but I think I could do it with 400 francs. He turned a little pale, because he had been saving that exact amount to buy a gun and treat himself to a hunting trip the following summer in the country near Nanterre, with a few friends who went lark shooting there on Sundays. However, he said, Very well, I can give you 400 francs, but try and get a really beautiful dress. The day of the party drew near, and Madame Loiselle seemed sad, restless, anxious. Her dress was ready, however. One evening, her husband said to her, What's the matter? You've been acting strange these last three days. She replied, I'm upset that I have no jewels, not a single stone to wear. I will look cheap. I would almost rather not go to the party. You could wear flowers, he said. They are very fashionable at this time of year. For ten francs you could get two or three magnificent roses. She was not convinced. No, there is nothing more humiliating than looking poor in the middle of a lot of rich women. How stupid you are, her husband cried. Go and see your friend Madame Forestier and ask her to lend you some jewels. You know her well enough for that. She uttered a cry of joy. Of course, I had not thought of that. The next day, she went to her friend's house and told her of her distress. Madame Forestier went into her mirrored wardrobe, took out a large box, brought it back, opened it, and said to Madame Loiselle, Choose, my dear. First, she saw some bracelets, then a pearl necklace, then a gold Venetian cross set with precious stones of exquisite craftsmanship. She tried on the jewellery in the mirror, hesitated, could not bear to part with them, to give them back. She kept asking, You have nothing else? Why, yes, but I don't know what you like. Suddenly she discovered in a black satin box a superb diamond necklace, and her heart began to beat with uncontrolled desire. Her hands trembled as she took it. She fastened it around her neck, over her high-necked dress, and stood lost in ecstasy as she looked at herself. Then she asked, anxiously hesitating, Would you lend me this, just this? Why, of course. She threw her arms around her friend's neck, embraced her rapturously, then fled with her treasure. The day of the party arrived. Madame Loiselle was a success. She was prettier than all the other women, elegant, gracious, smiling, and full of joy. All the men stared at her, asked her name, 
tried to be introduced. All the cabinet officials wanted to waltz with her. The minister noticed her. She danced wildly with passion, drunk on pleasure, forgetting everything in the triumph of her beauty, in the glory of her success, in a sort of cloud of happiness made up of all this respect, all this admiration, all these awakened desires, of that sense of triumph that is so sweet to a woman's heart. She left at about four o'clock in the morning. Her husband had been dozing since midnight in a little deserted anteroom with three other gentlemen whose wives were having a good time. He threw over her shoulders the clothes he had brought for her to go outside in, the modest clothes of an ordinary life, whose poverty contrasted sharply with the elegance of the ball dress. She felt this and wanted to run away, so she wouldn't be noticed by the other women who were wrapping themselves in expensive furs. Mazelle held her back. Wait a moment. You'll catch a cold outside. I'll go and find a cab. But she would not listen to him and ran down the stairs. When they were finally in the street, they could not find a cab and began to look for one, shouting at the cabmen they saw passing in the distance. They walked down toward the Seine in despair, shivering with cold. At last, they found on the quay one of those old night cabs that one sees in Paris only after dark, as if they were ashamed to show their shabbiness during the day. They were dropped off at the door in the Rue de Martyr and sadly walked up the steps to their apartment. It was all over for her, and he was remembering that he had to be back at his office at ten o'clock. In front of the mirror, she took off the clothes around her shoulders, taking a final look at herself in all her glory. But suddenly, she uttered a cry. She no longer had the necklace around her neck. What is the matter? asked her husband, already half undressed. She turned towards him, panic-stricken. I have, I have, I no longer have Madame Forestier's necklace. He stood up, distraught. What? How? That's impossible. They looked in the folds of her dress, in the folds of her cloak, in her pockets, everywhere, but they could not find it. Are you sure you still had it on when you left the ball? he asked. Yes, I touched it in the hall at the ministry. But if you had lost it in the street, we would have heard it fall. It must be in the cab. Yes, that's probably it. Did you take his number? No. And you? Didn't you notice it? No. They stared at each other, stunned. At last, Loiselle put on his clothes again. I'm going back, he said, over the whole route we walked. See if I can find it. He left. She remained in her ball dress all evening without the strength to go to bed, sitting on a chair with no fire, her mind blank. Her husband returned at about seven o'clock. He had found nothing. He went to the police, to the newspapers to offer a reward, to the cab companies. Everywhere the tiniest glimmer of hope led him. She waited all day in the same state of blank despair from before this frightful disaster. Mademoiselle returned in the evening, a hollow pale figure. He had found nothing. You must write to your friend, he said. Tell her you've broken the clasp of her necklace and that you are having it mended. It will give us some time to look some more. She wrote as he dictated. At the end of one week, they had lost all hope. And Loiselle, who had aged five years, declared, we must consider how to replace the jewel. The next day, they took the box which had held it and went to the jeweller whose name they found inside. He consulted his books. 
It was not I, madame, who sold the necklace. I must simply have supplied the case. And so they went from jeweler to jeweler, looking for a necklace like the other one, consulting their memories, both sick with grief and anguish. In a shop at the Palais Royal, they found a string of diamonds which seemed to be exactly what they were looking for. It was worth 40,000 francs. They could have it for 36,000. So they begged the jeweler not to sell it for three days, and they made an arrangement that he would take it back for 34,000 francs if the other necklace was found before the end of February. Moselle had 18,000 francs which his father had left him. He would borrow the rest. And he did borrow, asking for a 1,000 francs from one man, 500 from another, five here, three there. He gave notes, made ruinous agreements, dealt with usurers, with every type of moneylender. He compromised the rest of his life, risked signing notes without knowing if he could ever honour them, and, terrified by the anguish still to come, by the black misery about to fall on him, by the prospect of every physical privation and every moral torture he was about to suffer, he went to get the new necklace and laid down on the jeweler's counter 36,000 francs. When Madame Lozelle took the necklace back, Madame Forestier said coldly, You should have returned it sooner. I might have needed it. To the relief of her friend, she did not open the case. If she had detected the substitution, what would she have thought? What would she have said? Would she have taken her friend for a thief? From then on, Madame Lozelle knew the horrible life of the very poor, but she played her part heroically. The dreadful debt must be repaid. She would pay it. They dismissed their maid. They changed their lodgings. They rented a garret under the roof. She came to know the drudgery of housework, the odious labours of the kitchen. She washed the dishes, staining her rosy nails on greasy pots and the bottoms of pans. She washed the dirty linen, the shirts and the dishcloths which she hung to dry on a line. She carried the garbage down to the street every morning and carried up the water, stopping at each landing to catch her breath. And dressed like a commoner, she went to the fruiterers, the grocers, the butchers, her basket on her arm, bargaining, insulted, fighting over every miserable sou. Each month they had to pay some notes, renew others, get more time. Her husband worked every evening doing accounts for a tradesman, and often, late at night, he sat, copying a manuscript at five sous a page, and this life lasted ten years. At the end of the ten years, they had paid off everything, everything at usurer's rates and with the accumulations of compound interest. Madame Loiselle looked old now. She had become strong, hard, and rough, like all women of impoverished households, with hair half combed, with skirts awry and red in hands. She talked loudly as she washed the floor with great swishes of water. But sometimes, when her husband was at the office, she sat down near the window and thought of that evening at the ball so long ago, when she had been so beautiful and so admired. What would have happened if she had not lost that necklace? Who knows? Who knows? How strange life is, how fickle. How little is needed for one to be ruined or saved. One Sunday, as she was walking to refresh herself after the week's work, Suddenly she saw a woman walking with a child. It was Madame Forestier, still young, still beautiful, still charming. Madame Lozelle felt emotional. Should she speak to her? Yes, of course. And now that she had paid, she would tell her all. Why not? 
she went up to her. Good morning, Jean. The other, astonished to be addressed so familiarly by this common woman, did not recognize her. She stammered, But madame, I don't know you. You must have made a mistake. No, I am Mathilde Lozelle. Her friend uttered a cry. Oh, my poor Mathilde, how you've changed. Yes, I have had some hard times since I last saw you, and some miseries, and all because of you. Me? How can that be? You remember that diamond necklace that you lent to me to wear at the ministry party? Yes. Well? Well, I lost it. What do you mean, you brought it back? I brought back another exactly like it, and it has taken us ten years to pay for it. It wasn't easy for us. We had very little. But at last, it is over, and I am very glad. Madame Forestier was stunned. You said that you bought a diamond necklace to replace mine. Yes. You didn't notice then? They were very similar. And she smiled with proud and innocent pleasure. Madame Forestier, deeply moved, took both her hands. Oh, my poor Mathilde, mine was an imitation. It was worth 500 francs at most. A piece of string. It was market day, and from all the country round Godeville, the peasants and their wives were coming toward the town. The men walked slowly, throwing the whole body forward at every step of their long, crooked legs. They were deformed from pushing the plough, which makes the left shoulder higher and bends their figures sideways, from reaping the grain when they have to spread their legs so as to keep on their feet. Their starched blue blouses, glossy as though varnished, ornamented at collar and cuffs with a little embroidered design and blown out around their bony bodies, looked very much like balloons about to soar once issued two arms and two feet. Some of those fellows dragged a cow or a calf at the end of a rope, and just behind the animal followed their wives, beating it over the back with a leaf-covered branch to hasten its pace and carrying large baskets, out of which protruded the heads of chickens or ducks. These women walked more quickly and energetically than the men, with their erect, dried-up figures, adorned with scanty little shawls, pinned over their flat bosoms, and their heads wrapped round with a white cloth, enclosing the hair and surmounted by a cap. Now a wagon passed by, jogging along behind an ag, and shaking up strangely the two men on the seat, and the woman at the bottom of the cart, who held fast to its sides to lessen the hard jolting. In the marketplace at Godeville was a great crowd, a mingled multitude of men and beasts, the horns of cattle, the high, long-napped hats of wealthy peasants, the headdresses of the women came to the surface of that sea, and the sharp, shrill, barking voices made a continuous, wild din, while above it occasionally rose a huge burst of laughter from the sturdy lungs of a merry peasant or a prolonged bellow from a cow tied fast to the wall of a house. It all smelled of the stable, of milk, of hay, and of perspiration, giving off that half-human, half-animal odour which is peculiar to country folks. Maitre Hochkorn of Brot had just arrived at Godeville and was making his way toward the square when he perceived on the ground a little piece of string. 
Metro Hoshkorn economical, as are all true Normans, reflected that everything was worth picking up which could be of any use. And he stooped down, but painfully, because he suffered from rheumatism. He took the bit of thin string from the ground and was carefully preparing to roll it up when he saw Maître Maladin, the harness maker, on his doorstep, staring at him. They had once had a quarrel about a halter, and they had borne each other malice ever since. Maître Hochkorn was overcome with a sort of shame at being seen by his enemy picking up a bit of string in the road. He quickly hid it beneath his blouse, and then slipped it into his breeches. Then, pretended to be still looking for something on the ground which he did not discover, and finally went off toward the marketplace, his head bent forward and his body almost doubled in two by rheumatic pains. He was at once lost in the crowd, which kept moving about slowly and noisily as it chaffered and bargained. The peasants examined the cows, went off, came back, always in doubt for fear of being cheated, never quite daring to decide, looking the seller square in the eye in the effort to discover the tricks of the man and the defect in the beast. The women, having placed their great baskets at their feet, had taken out the poultry, which lay upon the ground, their legs tied together with terrified eyes and scarlet combs. They listened to propositions, maintaining their prices in a decided manner, with an impassive face, or perhaps deciding to accept the smaller offer, suddenly calling out to the customer, who was starting to go away, All right, I'll let you have them. Then, little by little, the square became empty, and when the Angelus struck midday, those who lived at a distance poured into the inns. At Jordan's, the great room was filled with eaters, just as the vast court was filled with vehicles of every sort, wagons, gigs, tilburies, innumerable vehicles which have no name, yellow with mud, misshapen, pieced together, raising their shafts to heaven like two arms, or it may be with their nose on the ground and their rear in the air. Just opposite to where the diners were at the table, the huge fireplace with its bright flame gave out a burning heat on the backs of those who sat at the right. Three spits were turning, loaded with chickens, with pigeons, and with joints of mutton, and a delectable odour of roast meat and of gravy flowing over crisp brown skin rose from the hearth, kindled merriment, caused mouths to water. All of the aristocracy of the plough were eating their jardins, the innkeepers, a dealer in horses also, and a sharp fellow who had made a great deal of money in his day. The dishes were passed round, were emptied, as were the jugs of yellow cider. Everyone told of his affairs, of his purchases, of his sales. They exchanged news about the crops. The weather was good for greens, but too wet for green. Suddenly, the drum began to beat in the courtyard before the house. Everyone, except some of the most indifferent, was on their feet at once and ran to the door, to the windows, their mouths full and napkins in their hand. The public crier called forth in a jerky voice, pausing in the wrong places. Be it known to the inhabitants of Godeville, and in general to all persons present at the market, that there has been lost this morning, at Beauceville Road, between nine and ten o'clock, a black leather pocketbook containing five hundred francs and business papers. You are requested to return it to the mayor's office at once, 
or to Maitre Fortune Holbrook of Manaville. There will be twenty francs reward. Then the man went away. They heard once more at a distance the dull beating of the drum and the faint voice of the crier. Then they all began to talk of this incident, reckoning up the chances which Maitre Holbrook had of finding or of not finding his pocketbook again. The meal went on. They were finishing their coffee when the corporal of police appeared on the threshold. He asked, Is Metro Hoshkorn of Brot here? Metro Hoshkorn, seated at the other end of the table, answered, Here I am, here I am, and he followed the corporal. The mayor was waiting for him, seated in an armchair. He was the notary of the place, a tall, grave man of pompous speech. Metro Hoshkorn, he said, this morning on the Bosville Road, you were seen to pick up the pocketbook lost by Metro Holbrook of Manaville. The countryman looked at the mayor in amazement, frightened already at the suspicion which rested on him. He knew not why. I picked up that pocketbook? Yes, you. I swear I don't even know anything about it. You were seen. I was seen? Who saw me? Monsieur Maladin the harness maker. Then the old man remembered, understood, and reddening with anger said, He saw me, did he, the rascal? He saw me picking up the string here, Monsieur Le Maire. And fumbling at the bottom of his pocket, he pulled out of it the little end of string. But the mayor incredulously shook his head. You will not make me believe that Monsieur Maladin, who is a man whose word can be relied on, has mistaken this string for a pocketbook? The peasant, furious, raised his hand and spat on the ground beside him as if to attest his good faith, repeating, For all that, it is God's truth, Monsieur Le Maire. There, on my soul's salvation, I repeat it. The mayor continued, After you picked up the object in question, you even looked about for some time in the mud to see if a piece of money had not dropped from it. The good man was choking with indignation and fear. How can they tell? How can they tell such lies as that to slander an honest man? How can they? His protestations were in vain. He was not believed. He was confronted with Monsieur Maladin, who repeated and sustained his testimony. They railed at one another for an hour. At his own request, Major Hoshkorn was searched. Nothing was found on him. At last, the mayor, much perplexed, sent him away, warning him that he would inform the public prosecutor and ask for orders. The news had spread. When he left the mayor's office, the old man was surrounded, interrogated with a curiosity which was serious or mocking, as the case might be, but into which no indignation entered. And he began to tell the story of the string. They did not believe him. They laughed. He passed on, buttonholed by everyone, himself buttonholing his acquaintances, beginning over and over again his tale and his protestations showing his pockets turned inside out to prove that he had nothing in them. They said to him, You old rogue. He grew more and more angry, feverish in despair at not being believed, and kept on telling his story. The night came. It was time to go home. He left with three of his neighbors, to whom he pointed out the place where he picked up the string, and all the way he talked of his adventure. That evening, he made the round of the village of Broad for the purpose of telling everyone. 
he met only unbelievers. He brooded over it all night long. The next day, about one in the afternoon, Marius Pommel, a farmer hand at Maitre Breton, the market gardener at Emoville, returned the pocketbook and its contents to Maitre Holbrook of Manaville. This man said, indeed, that he had found it on the road, but not knowing how to read, he had carried it home and given it to his master. The news spread to the environs. Maitre Hoshkorn was informed. He started off at once and began to relate his story with the denouement. He was triumphant. What grieved me, said he, was not the thing itself, do you understand, but it was being accused of lying. Nothing does you so much harm as being in disgrace for lying. All day he talked of his adventure. He told it on the roads to the people who passed, at the cabaret to the people who drank, and next Sunday when they came out of church. He even stopped strangers to tell them about it. He was easy now, and yet something worried him without his knowing exactly what it was. People had a joking manner while they listened. They did not seem convinced. He seemed to feel the remarks behind his back. On Tuesday of the following week, he went to market at Godaville, prompted slowly by the need of telling his story. Maladin, standing on his doorstep, began to laugh as he saw him pass. Why? He accosted a farmer at Cricoteau who did not let him finish, and giving him a punch in the pit of the stomach, cried in his face, Oh, you great rogue. Then he turned his heel upon him. Major Hoshkorn remained speechless and grew more and more uneasy. Why did they call him a great rogue? When seated at the table in Jardin's tavern, he began again to explain the whole affair. A horse dealer of Montvillier shouted at him, Get out, get out, you old scamp. I know all about your old string. Hoshkorn stammered. But since they found it again, the pocketbook. But the other continued, Hold your tongue. There's one who finds it, and there's another who returns it, and no one the wiser. The farmer was speechless. He understood at last. They accused him of having had the pocketbook brought back by an accomplice, by a confederate. He tried to protest. The whole table began to laugh. He could not finish his dinner and went away amid a chorus of jeers. He went home indignant, choking with rage, with confusion, the more cast down since with his Norman craftiness he was perhaps capable of having done what they accused him of, and even of boasting of it as a good trick. He was dimly conscious that it was impossible to prove his innocence, his craftiness being so well known. He felt himself struck to the heart by the injustice of the suspicion. He began anew to tell his tale, lengthening his recital every day, each day adding new proofs, more energetic declarations and more sacred oaths, which he thought of, which he prepared in his hours of solitude, for his mind was entirely occupied with the story of the string. The more he denied it, the more artful his arguments, the less he was believed. Those are liar's proofs, they said behind his back. He felt this. It preyed upon him and he exhausted himself in useless efforts. He was visibly wasting away. Jokers would make him tell the story of the piece of string to amuse them, just as you make a soldier who has been on a campaign tell his story of the battle. His mind kept growing weaker and about the end of December he took to his bed. He passed away early in January, and, in the ravings of death agony, he protested his innocence, repeating, 
a little bit of string, a little bit of string. See, here it is, Monsieur le Maire.